61 District 6, stage 1 shooting. Skimmer Wayne, near Lakeland, Charles, 478 Tango. 378-1654. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Sevalero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, once again, everyone, it's time to go Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Sevalero. I got to tell you, I want to thank you for joining us. It's always great to come and sit down with you in front of the microphone and to talk about what's going on inside of EMS. But before we do that, my better half, here he is, that guy, the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you? I'm fine, man, and, and happy birthday. What are you, like seven, eight now? That's exactly right. Actually, yesterday, uh, March 17th, was my 50th birthday, and uh, one of the best presents that I received in the mail was my AARP card. So uh, hey, I'm hey. very excited about that. And, uh, that's 10% off at Dunkin' Donuts, man. Whatever it is. They don't have Dunkin' Donuts in Missouri, so I can't wait ah. to come to come to Louisiana and use that card. <laughs> we don't have them there either. But uh, Oh, really? But, well, thanks for teasing me then. But but Nancy has a uh, AARP card, so we, we get free stuff on, on her Dunkin', uh, at Dunkin' when we when we go to Connecticut. So. That's awesome. I mean, <laughs> how, could she, how could she get one at 25 years old? That's what I want to know. That's it. She only looks 25. That's I, right. I, I, so. I think well, they're jumping the gun a bit. Here we go. So, Kelly, you know, we, we talk a lot about, uh, you know, things that are going on in EMS, and sometimes people are on our side. Sometimes uh, people think we're way off base, and, you know, we've got a way of, of rubbing people the wrong way sometimes, don't we? Uh, well, I don't know about you, but I, I'm all sweetness and light 24-7, 365. You are. Uh, mm-hmm. no. Sure. Yeah, right. we, we, we do uh, we do court a little controversy now and then. I think uh, debate's a healthy, fundamentally a healthy thing. If you aren't stirring debate and you don't get some, some uh, negative comments, you aren't saying anything worthwhile. Uh, and in that vein, we have a, we're a dissenting listener with us today. Yeah, let's go ahead and set that up. So a few shows back, Kelly and I had the discussion about my five-year plan. And my five-year plan was to, you know, maybe I made a mistake with an all-ALS system. And the thought was now as we start to move into a transformation into the community paramedicine world, that maybe we have more community paramedics in the field and our EMS system will need to go back uh, to BLS and train our BLS providers to deliver a higher quality of patient care and and allow them to work with some of the skills that they have. And and Kelly, you and I were kind of in agreement there, which is uh, kind of unusual. But one of our good friends and followers and fans, Bob Sullivan, uh, we're going to bring him in. And uh, he thought that we still needed to talk about the uh, ALS side of the business, that that's where we needed to go. And we're going to kind of debate that. Uh, Kelly is going to take the uh, pro-BLS and of course, Bob's going to take the con uh, more towards ALS. But let's go ahead and bring him in. Bob, how you doing? Uh, thanks for joining us on Inside EMS. And uh, why don't you share a little bit about yourself with the listeners? Oh, hi, uh, hi, Chris and Kelly. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. It's an honor. I currently teach with the paramedic program at Delaware Technical Community College in Dover, Delaware. I have a blog, the EMS Patient Perspective, and I just started writing for EMS One. I have a two two columns up now. A few more in the pipeline. Cool. And uh, before that, I worked uh, as a chase truck paramedic with Newcastle County EMS for about 10 years. Before that, I've worked in some private and fire-based configurations with medic EMT ambulances, you know, three paramedic, uh, one on a fire truck. 
two on an ambulance design. So I've seen a couple different system designs. The majority of my time was with a tiered system. And in your experience with a tiered system, you, you took took some issue with, with my assertion that, that uh, a tiered system is probably the best all-around system design and that many of the patients were shortchanged by not getting a paramedic in a tiered response system. Why don't you elaborate on that for us? Uh, well, I do. For, for a while, I was a supporter of the chase truck model. Mm-hmm. And, and paramedics only go on uh, calls believed to require an ALS intervention. Mm-hmm. And I, I was a supporter. I, was, uh, I participated in discussion forums with people who believed otherwise. And, and since then, I've sort of switched political parties, which is not, uh, my opinion is not popular in, in my area or <laughs> necessarily shared by my employer. But... I do. I see a lot of patients, like I would be in triage with my, my chest pain patient who I gave nitro to, and, and then in comes behind me is just a, an elderly patient writhing on a stretcher brought in by a BLS ambulance with a hip fracture. And the EMTs are doing the best they can with, with what they are taught, with the tools they have available, but there are just certain interventions that are frequently required, like I believe pain medicine. And Kelly, you've written a lot about pain medicine, which I, I uh-huh. agree completely with. Um, I just one of your your thing about the abdominal pain came up on Facebook recently about how poor we are at medicating abdominal pain. Uh-huh. And but that's a BLS call. In fact, it even says in the dispatch cards, the medical priority dispatch cards, with in the abdominal pain, the severity of pain does not equal the severity of problem, and that usually a BLS response is adequate. Um, and if, even if it's not a life-threatening emergency, I think just for the pain medicine, that mm-hmm. warrants a paramedic-level response. Well, so, so your objection is, is, is not so much to the system design. It's, it's to how MPDS uh, triages calls um, and, and relegates you know, pain management to, uh, as being not worthy of a paramedic. Would, would that be a fair statement? Well, it would be. And again, I supported the tiered response for all the reasons you discussed. It's a small group of paramedics. It was a very progressive system. We had high cardiac arrest survival rates, frequent practice doing uh, invasive procedures. And and I agree with all of that. I'm not sure how you can come up with a dispatch triage system that will assess for things like pain management, uh, chemical sedation for excited delirium certainly but i think any patient that's re- that requires restraint who continues to resist uh-huh. cloth restraint for the safety of the patient providers for everybody you can you know you can have three people you can wheel someone into the emergency department with three people sitting on them uh-huh. and have the constables jump on them or they can get sedated before you move them to the ambulance and they come in sleepy and just yeah. get a monitored bed yeah well I can spend several podcasts uh, uh, <laughs> dissing a medical priority dispatch system and, and why it's wrong more often than it's right. But it, but it seems to me that that's, that's not an issue with tiered response systems. That's an issue with medical priority dispatch system. And, and you know, there are, I know that, that uh, MPDS and, and Clawson will only indemnify an organization if they use their their uh, system unmodified but there are systems out there that that change it around and they modify it to their own to their own needs Boston EMS being one of them you know they don't follow strict MPDS dispatch protocols some things that are ALS and in, in under MPDS are uh, BLS calls in Boston system and, and vice versa and I don't think that that's so much a flaw as the with 
uh, a tiered response system. I think that's a flaw and relatively easy corrected with the way we dispatch and triage calls. I, I think that's a fairly fairly easy fix to say, okay, well, falls with possible with you know reported pain uh, or um, you know calls that psych patients that they're aggressive and need restraint probably should get a paramedic. I think that's a fairly easy fix. What, what do you think, Chris? Yeah, I mean, for one, I, I've heard you talk about priority dispatch before, and I think this is one of the, in, in a future show, I would like to be able to debate that with you, because I, I do, I am a fan of priority dispatch, and I think priority dispatch does uh, what it needs to do. And uh, if it's done correctly, I, I've seen 97, 98% uh, success in dispatching calls, but that's neither here nor there. Well, you know, I think it's like the U.S. legal system. It's the worst one in the world, except for everybody else's. That's that's a very interesting analogy. Yeah, it, it sucks really bad, except for everybody else's. Right. Well, yeah, I, I think that, that uh, some people say good, some people say bad, but that, I think that's something we can chat about in a future show. But, you know, when it, when it comes to this topic of tiered system, the, the side that I'm coming from is, and if you look at the OPAL study, if you guys out there have not familiar with the OPAL study, go ahead and check it out. It's a study that came out of Ontario, Canada, and they talked about how... ALS response was really kind of a, a waste of time, let's go ahead and put it that way, to where we can train our BLS providers to do everything that needs to be done to deliver the highest quality of patient care. And when I first came to Christian Hospital in North St. Louis County, they didn't even let their EMTs do anything but drive. And they weren't even allowing them to work to the level of expertise. And that was one of the first things that we changed uh, as part of that, uh, you know, as part of that uh, coming into that system. But I think that there are so many more things that we can allow our BLS providers to do mm -hmm. and to have ALS intercept. And I think that our patients will receive that awesome care. Yeah. And Bob, let me let me throw that. Let me let me expound on, on Chris's point and throw it back to you in my perfect EMS system. You know, it would be a tiered response system with the with a small cadre of ALS providers exquisitely trained and, and BLS providers providing the most care. There are systems out there like that already, uh, not so much uh, tiered response systems, but systems that have made these kind of adjustments work uh, have done a really good job at blurring the lines uh, between BLS and ALS. And I, th I think those are lines that need to be, you know, I think that we need to uh, dispense with the uh, or get away from terms like BLS and ALS care. There's just care. If you had your perfect EMS system and your BLS uh, tiered response system and your BLS providers were able to do whatever you thought they were would be necessary to do, what would you have them doing to uh, to fill the gaps as you see them in tiered response? Well, I'm glad you brought up opals because Canada's EMTs or their primary care paramedics, they have more education hours, at least in Ontario, than American paramedics do. So it's really apples and oranges when you compare opals. And, they, and in the findings, they found things that we know don't work, like IV fluids for hemorrhagic shock, intubating head injuries, and I, I don't think they were using capnography and monitoring pulse ox. And so all those things we know can be dangerous. And then there's a TV show in Australia, uh, Recruits, that I, I show it a lot in my class. Their lowest level of providers have it's a three-year program. I believe it comes with a bachelor's degree. And then they have intensive care paramedics mm -hmm. who respond to their critical calls. So the, the basement, the lowest level responder in New South Wales, Australia, 
does those things. They give people pain medicine. They have they have a lot more. I wish the FDA would approve the pain medicine that they're they're giving people. But they have they they sedate. There's a great clip of uh, I show it whenever I do excited delirium of the ambulance showing up the the advanced practice pair the intensive care paramedic shows up behind them but they're lowest trained people they're, they're giving out zofran uh they're doing 12 lead kgs they're assessing patients and they they call in the intensive care paramedic in a car to back them up for the critical patients and as far as expanding the bls scope eventually there there's so many more things so i went to emt school in 1999 and about about two years later and that was under the old the old um you know, it's not a fracture; it's a swollen, deformed, you know, extremity. extremity. <laughs> even if so, it's a rib. <laughs> even if, even if it's a yes. So, um, I, I, I like the changes from the 2009 education standards. I think the he added pathophysiology is great, but there's still no clinical hours, and you keep adding EpiPens and, and CPAP, which I think are good things, and the the, the benefits clearly outweigh the risk. Uh, I mean, albuterol, but you keep adding more and more without adding a foundation of A&P and, and patho that paramedics get. And they're not getting clinical hours. They're not getting practice doing any of those things on live patients until it's an emergency or, at, at best, a classroom you know, lab practice. I, I, I took a, an EpiPen bridge, and they just, in two hours, showed you what to do, and we never actually really even practiced it. What would be the hurdle to, say, adding Nitronox to the BLS scope of practice? We, we already teach our EMTs to uh, administer oxygen, uh, mm -hmm. spend a, a great deal of time on that. What would what would be the huge hurdle to say adding you know a 50-50 nitro uh, nitrous oxide and, and oxygen mix and having the patient self-administer? Are you hurting, sir? Here, put this mask up to your face, and pain relief is is sufficient, or the patient is is uh, knocked out. They the mask drops away from their face, and and the medication wears off. And when it comes back, they, they can put the mask to their face again. Seems to be a, a pretty elegant solution to to simple pain relief, uh, and and well within the capabilities of a basic EMT. What do you think about that? I like it. Would that be contraindicated for abdominal pain? So that that's one thing. <laughs> let me but aside, let me ask the question. Bob, Bob, let me ask the question. And Kelly, maybe you know this better than I do. I, I, I thought I've seen current research, and this may have been a, a bit ago. Aren't aren't we moving away from the thought of pain medicine and abdominal pain? Aren't oh. they saying that that was that really is one of those uh, dogmas that we needed to get away from? The dogma that that goes back to the early twentieth century. Uh, uh, you know, nineteen seventeen, nineteen eighteen. And it really has no place whatsoever uh, in current medical practice in, in the age of diagnostic imaging. That, that's my opinion, uh, but it also happens to be an opinion that uh, a great many more profound things than myself uh, happen to share. I, I really don't think that there is much of a contraindication to analgesia in undifferentiated abdominal pain, period. Not, not, not narcotics, just the nitro because of the gas. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's true. Well, you know, I mean, but... but would you would you also be giving that person oxygen? You know, uh, if they needed it. Uh, I mean, I would think that the the, the bigger contraindication to to nitronox would not be so much abdominal pain. It would be someone who required 100% oxygen because okay. the best you're going to get is 50% with nitronox. I, I guess I I, I, don't, I haven't seen the same research you had on on the the nitronox and abdominal pain. I'm not that that's that's older that that may be outdated information too. Okay. But, but besides the pain management, though, there's the the 12 leads assessment because everyone 
I, when I have students in the hospital, everyone that walks into the hospital feels dizzy, nauseous, lightheaded, not quite right. They get an EKG early before they get sent to the waiting room oftentimes. And that's a screening tool that a lot of patients come in BLS. And I know we've commented on each other's uh-huh. posts before about this, about training BLS to do EKGs. And that's one more thing. Is that something that we should be screening? Is it an expectation that EMS should be able to at least look and see if it's a STEMI or not? Well, you talked to Tom Tom Boothelay and projects he's had with Code STEMI. That's one. That's been one of the things that they've they've advocated for is allowing BLS providers to obtain and transmit 12 lead EKGs, shorten that door to drug interval. My partners, my partners know how to apply a uh, sure. know how to apply a 12 lead EKG. They don't know how to interpret one, but you know something. Many of my paramedic partners don't know how to interpret one worth a darn either. Their interpretation is limited to whatever the printout, the Marquette algorithm's interpretation is, uh, and it goes no further than that. And the same can be said of the, the emergency department staff, at least the nursing staff and the techs that are doing EKGs. So, I, you know, I, I don't think that, that applying and transmitting a 12-lead EKG is, is a big hurdle either to EMTs. You can say, okay, guys, here are, here are the anginal equivalents. Sudden onset of respiratory distress, nausea and vomiting, or profound weakness with these risk factors, do a 12 lead EKG on them. And, and you, you plan on lots of over triage and unnecessary EKGs, but hey, that's no big deal if you cast a wide net and hopefully you'll catch uh, the, the real MIs in there somewhere. You know, one of the things that I want to I touch base on, and I think those are good points, I really want to get into the weeds about this. Bob, one of the things that you said, and I applaud you for bringing that up, is that the the folks up in Ontario have considerable amount more training than the EMTs we have in the states, which would only mean that we would have to be able to educate more, uh, give our EMTs more education than they have now at the basic level. Maybe it's even bring them up to an intermediate level so they're able to do some more things. But I, I want to get into this discussion right now. And Kelly, you know, get ready for this. What is it that paramedic does that an EMT couldn't do for a patient on scene? Well, I want to. I go with very I'd, little. I want to go very with Bob little. first, and then okay, we'll, we'll go to you. Okay, uh, well, I think that for the life-threatening emergencies, that's when an EMT you you could give an EMT the skills to manage anything that's an obvious life threat. You can give them EpiPens, Versed injectors. I know there was a, a study with glucagon, defibrillation, supraglottic airways, CPAP. You could get through a crashing patient with the level of skills an EMT has. Now, do they have enough education and, and clinical field time that paramedics are required to get to carry out those interventions? No. Where I think the biggest benefit to ALS is, is the patient that doesn't look sick, but they know what questions to ask because they're, they're taught that at a deeper level than... EMTs in America are, and it's the 12 leads. And now lactate is for sepsis. The third last service I work for has lactate monitors, and they have a uh, incorporated them into a sepsis program at the hospital. I know on EMS one, they just had an article about uh, service in Indiana getting ultrasound. So I think that's going to be coming for triage. I think there's going to be more point of care things for things like potassium, uh-huh. all things that now take hours in the hospital to find are coming to the field for us to say, you know, of all the patients in line at triage, this one is sick. We, we, we can, we know we have an objective assessment finding. And I think that that's more of the role for ALS in assessing those patients than treating the, the, the critical illnesses that 
there is a tool now available for BLS. Now, if your choice is if you're in a rural area and you have a BLS services, you know, absolutely add as many of those uh, the life-saving tools as you can. But the assessment is where the greater benefit is, I think. Yeah, I, you know, I, I agree in, in that regard that, that it's not so much what we do on scene, it's what we know and what we ask. And it requires a, a much deeper found, educational foundation to, to, to know what's pertinent and what's not. But as uh, purely in regard to interventions, there is very few ALS interventions I will provide on scene. And the ones that I can think of are almost always relegated to cardiac arrest interventions and and hypoglycemic diabetics and seizure patients. You know, establish an IV, stop the seizure, or uh, and, and establish an IV, uh, correct the blood sugar uh, sort of thing. And that's really about the only time you see me starting an IV and, and doing a, a, an ALS procedure or medication administration on a scene. Generally, my patients... Uh, um, the vast majority of care I provide on scene is BLS care, something that's well within the, the capability, at least intervention-wise, uh, of my EMT partners. You know, you, you mentioned the lactate. Lactate testing is, is done with just a, a simple finger stick and just like a glucometer. And and the, the South Denver Metro sepsis protocol, their sepsis alert program was, was pretty straightforward. You know, your patient meets these criteria then call a sepsis alert. Virtually all of those criteria were, were things that were well within BLS assessment. Didn't require ALS at all. The only exception being, you know, of course, leukocytosis or, or leukopenia, which which is out of the scope of, of most paramedics as well. So I'm not so sure that an EMT basic couldn't couldn't effectively call a sepsis alert as well. Do you disagree? Uh, no, I, I don't I don't disagree with that. But it goes back to also assessment for other things. Yeah. When you look at the minimum education level in Canada and what they're when they add oh, yeah. you know, they're like far, far better trained than we are. And when we look at our nursing profession, and I know you got into this with the RN to, to paramedic bridge program. Mm-hmm. When when nurses at a minimum have an associate's degree now. Yeah. And many in an emergency department have a bachelor's degree. Is it unreasonable for us in this country to expect one person when you look at Canada and Australia and the UK, one person on scene to have an associate's degree or the, the comparable, you know, I know that the paramedics doesn't require that you'd have an associate's degree yet, but that level of education for, you know, to, to do your comprehensive assessment and to have a more foundational to the background about the interventions, about pain management and, and, and why they're, they're doing what they're doing. Well, let me ask the question so I would right. understand. So, do you think, Bob, that the uh, advanced degree makes a different provider? The advanced degree, like a degree versus like a, associ- a associate's degree, bachelor's degree? Because uh, uh, is that what you were saying? I, I, maybe I misunderstood your point. I, ideally, I, I, I would like paramedics to have an associate's degree, but I think for now, is it reasonable for one person, when you look at how many hours EMT class is, mm-hmm. is it unreasonable to have one person with the, the 2,000 hours of training on a scene, when you look at, they're going to be assessed by a nurse in the hospital that, that must have an associate's degree that works as part of a team. When in EMS, we're, we're preparing people to work by themselves in these environments. And the current BLS curriculum has very few hospital clinical hours. There's no um, individual programs. They require an internship. But the national standard currently does not before certification. And so our question is, we, we want to advance into community paramedics and, and expand our role. 
on on one end, should we? Is it now the time to expand or, or expect more of the a minimum response to a nine one one call? Bob, on the on the uh, subject of uh, EMTs lacking, you know, the the clinical exposure and the, the clinical acumen to to know what questions to ask and and the history, being able to gather an appropriate history. How much of that do you think is simply due to the fact that traditionally the only things we expect them to do are drive the bus and fetch equipment and do little BLS assessment things? When they're paired with a paramedic, you know, that's that's often the role we relegate them to. It's not what I do with my partners, but often that's, you know, an EMT is a, is a highly educated pack mule. When we start requiring more of them and expecting more of them to, than to be a pack mule or an ambulance driver, how likely is it? Do you think that they'll they'll get better at assessing? Well, it, it depends on the environment that they, they yeah. work at and what their expectations are. So that's the in, in my area. It's there are two separate agencies. That mm-hmm. There's there's a a, a few dozen vol, uh, BLS services and one paramedic service. So there is a lot of expectations for the, for them to work independently. Mm-hmm. And some services have a, an extensive internship. Some do not. Some you have your EMT card. There you go. Yeah, which I think is sort of the op- that's the opposite. That's the opposite end of you know the the bell curve for that. Well, Chris, looks like we've got a clinical, <laughs> like we've got a, uh, a clinical issue here, man. It sure does, buddy. I got to tell I don't you, think this I've, uh, convinced Bob, but then again, I don't think Bob's convinced me either. So, well, you know, but I, I, did, think, I didn't expect. I didn't expect. <laughs> but I think there's some great, great discussions on both yeah. sides you know and i think what what i've written down so i've written down both arguments here and what i've gotten to is this that we both feel uh, both sides feel that emts have some capability uh, i don't think we're utilizing them to their fullest capacity another mm-hmm. big thing that i wrote down here was education that if we can get our emts better educated and, and you know uh, what is it 60 hours 100 hours to become an emt uh, you know i think <laughs> It's like 160 hours now, yeah. but still, even that's that's probably uh, a third at the very least too short. It needs to be, you need to add at least another 80 hours to it to make a, a semi-competent EMT, in my opinion. But I think on top of that, you know, when we think about getting EMTs more training, getting mm-hmm. them more uh, opportunities to do things that, uh, you know, to take care of really sick patients, have them identify those things, you know, from I'm still gathering from both sides that the uh, disconnect is really the educational process of how we get these folks ready to do their jobs. And uh, I got to tell you, I don't know that I'm convinced that, you know, that both sides aren't right here, but uh, it's going to be interesting to see what plays out in the next five years in some of those yep. systems. So when my legion of flying monkeys completes my quest for world domination, <laughs> I'll, I'll make sure that you two guys are on the protected roles and, and <laughs> you'll have a, you'll have a spot and uh, you'll have a say in, in determining how EMS and healthcare is, is, uh, is um, provided in, in my perfect world. In Kelly world, stuff's going to be different, man, let me tell you. <laughs> but in, in Kelly world, everyone's going to be wearing a toga drinking beer out of boots. So You say that like it's a bad thing. Yeah, I don't know. I it depends on, whose boots they, depends on whose boots they are. But yeah. So, Bob, let's go ahead and just hit a closing thought then, Bob. If you were going to go ahead and just put the, the stake on uh, not having a tiered system and have an ALS response, what do you leave the listeners with? Uh, well, there's a sweet spot between having people be busy enough to get enough practice doing skills and getting interventions and assessment uh, tools like, like pain management and those things to the, to the patients that need them. 
Um, I like what Wake County did. Uh, some sessions I've been about their transition from two paramedic ambulances to paramedic EMT ambulances with BLS first response and their advanced practice paramedic to have like an ex- uh, experienced person with demonstrated mm-hmm. clinical excellence respond to the critical calls as well as do the the community outreach you know programs like visiting the diabetics and the seizure patients so i think that that's more of sort of the the way i think that they've dealt with that balancing the procedures getting experienced people on scene but delivering pain management and and assessment findings to to everybody awesome good stuff and kelly grayson your retort well i I really can't uh i really can't disagree with anything you said there there is a sweet spot to be to uh to be found uh and most systems haven't really found that sweet spot and they're still working on it maybe wake uh wake has the answer maybe there is a it pains me to say this but maybe there is a a role for uh fire ems first response oh what a sellout (laughs) what a sellout did you bob Bob, you're my best friend now. You want to do a show with me? <laughs> don't put, don't put. Uh, fire engines don't need paramedics, but if it will stop that clock and get BLS on scene quicker, then I see nothing wrong with having BLS first response uh, with the fire department, BLS non-transport first response, and and they'll you know, and that might be the sweet spot for some communities. And having an ALS, uh, an EMT. Uh, uh, and medic staff rig and, and BLS first response seems to be uh, those systems worked well where I, where I've been. That's that's what we had uh, in the system I grew up in is, is fire department first response and uh, EMT and medic staffed ambulance doing the transport. And it worked worked fairly well. Well, good stuff. Sounds like we had a good little show on that discussion. As we get up there in time, it's probably enough for us to. Uh, browbeat the audience so we probably should let them go and uh, recover from this uh, awesome discussion but bob sullivan i want to thank you for joining us it was great for you to come and share your opinion thank you very much for being a fan thank you very much for trying to keep us honest promise you'll come back again and uh, share your thoughts with us Uh, i'd love to thanks so much for having me this was this was great i had a lot of fun and kelly i guess it's about that time to put the nails in another coffin of a show and uh, move on to next week so let's get us out of here I don't, you know, I hope to have another show, so I hope this isn't a coffin. Um, but as always, guys, we, we welcome your concerns, comments, suggestions. And if you're like Bob, you think we're full of crap and you want to debate us, we'd love to have you on the show. Just drop us a line at the show at ems1.com. And for co host Chris Civilero and our guest table guest, uh, Bob Sullivan, this is Kelly Grayson signing out, and we'll catch you on the Inside EMS next week. <laughs>